Thank you, choir. Turn with me, please, to Luke chapter 9 this morning in your New Testament scriptures. Luke chapter 9 is to come out of the reading and the preaching of the word to hear the good news announced to us by the Lord Jesus Christ and in the pages of God's word. So Luke chapter 9, I want to read today verses 28 through 36, the story of the transfiguration will be our focus today. So Luke chapter 9, beginning at verse 28. About eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, John, and James with him and went up onto a mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. As the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what he was saying. While he was speaking, a cloud appeared and covered them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice came from the cloud, saying, This is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. The disciples kept this to themselves and did not tell anyone at that time what they had seen. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray for his help. Father in heaven, again, you are our teacher. You reveal your son in this word. You send the Holy Spirit to enlighten our eyes and to enable us to believe what we read here and to obey it. So give us that ability today to hear your voice speaking in the scriptures and to know how we ought to respond and to be sent out as your people, living for you, representing you, loving you and others. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, who is Jesus? That is the question that Luke 9 is constantly asking. If you were to read this chapter, you would see at the beginning, Herod has heard about Jesus' ministry and is perplexed about who Jesus is. Some say that John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. Others, that Elijah has appeared, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. Well, Herod probably isn't buying into any of the resurrection ideas. He knows Jesus can't be John. He beheaded John. And so he wants to know, who is this I hear such things about? And then later in the chapter, as Jesus and the disciples are praying in private, he asks them, who do the crowds say I am? And the disciples, they echo similar answers, interestingly, to what Herod heard. Some say John the Baptist, others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life, and that's when Jesus asked them, who do you say I am? And Peter answers, God's Messiah. Well, as we come to the passage we have just read, God himself is giving us an answer to the question, who is Jesus And just as God spoke about his son at Jesus' baptism, in today's story, again, God will speak from heaven and identify both his son, who he is, and the mission he is on. 
And in some ways, it flows right out of Peter's confession. Since Peter has said, you are God's Messiah, God is now ready to show up and say, okay, let me tell you exactly what that means and all that's involved for you in making such a confession. And so we really have a privilege this morning of listening in on a conversation. We, we get to hear what God says about his son. And so in this passage, usually called the transfiguration, it, it comes as a challenge to us to consider afresh who Jesus is and what he calls us to do. And this will have relevance for really everyone in this room. If you count yourselves among those who are loyal to Jesus, you want to follow him. Well, Peter confessed that Jesus is God's Messiah, and so God showed up to say, okay, let's follow up on that confession. Here's what that means for you and other followers of Jesus. The story also has relevance for those who are still maybe curious about Jesus but haven't yet signed on to follow him. That This will answer your questions. What does the Bible at least claim about Jesus? What, what does it say we need to do? How should we respond to him? And as a church, again, we would identify with the disciples. We, we want to be those who are listening to God speak, who, who see his glory and respond to the call to follow him. So let's all give our attention this morning to the passage and let's follow this story of the transfiguration. And I just want to take you through the story. Don't even have a, a formal outline like I often have. You, you can keep in your mind these questions, who is Jesus and what is he calling me to do as we go through the story today? So according to Luke, it takes place about Eight days after Jesus said this, and the this refers to that conversation I just mentioned, where Jesus and his disciples, he asked them, who do people say I am? And Peter says, you are God's Messiah. Now, when Peter said that, Jesus said, okay, well, that mission to be God's Messiah, it's going to culminate in my crucifixion and my resurrection. And anyone who wants to follow me must be willing to face a similar path of suffering that leads to glory. And Luke refers back to that. He, he gives us the this because the story of the transfiguration really parallels that sequence. Jesus there discusses his suffering and his glory. Now he's going to show us his glory on the mountain of transfiguration. But remind us again that the cross must proceed that glory. So this story really illustrates what he's been telling his disciples. And it begins with Jesus taking Peter, John, and James with him up to a mountain to pray. Now, now we don't know if the disciples were expecting anything glorious to happen, but a reader of Luke's gospel may have noticed that it seems whenever prayer is present, whenever prayer happens, something significant usually follows. And so we're going to get a significant event here as Jesus is praying. And that's exactly what we read in verse 29. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed, and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. And often when you read through the scriptures, Old and New Testament alike, the, the face often indicate one's heart. It's, it's like a window into their soul. It might even indicate their relationship to God. And then clothes might indicate status. So you can have rich clothes, you can have poor clothes. Well, in this passage, Jesus has heavenly clothes. 
So God is trying to show us who Jesus is. What's his status and what is his glory? God himself showing up to authenticate that this is the Messiah and the Son of God. Peter confessed it and now God legitimates it. And after Jesus' appearance changes, two more people show up. They're also in glorious splendor. Luke identifies these two men as Moses and Elijah. Now, why these two men? I mean, all the Old Testament figures that could have shown up, why Moses, why Elijah? Well, both of those men are major figures from Israel's past. They show up at key turning points in God's salvation story in the Old Testament. And and, and think of that on a number of levels. On the one hand, you could think of them as the law and the prophets. Moses, the lawgiver, Elijah, the great prophet. So here's two major divisions of your Hebrew Bible. Sometimes the law and the prophets is how they refer to their Bible. So the Bible, so to speak, has shown up. They also represent major time periods. The Exodus, when God saved Israel out of Egypt. And the time of the kingdom, when when God was putting in place kings and they were ruling over God's people. Again, major moments where God was clearly advancing his saving purposes. And we could also think of both of them as prophets. And maybe you don't always think of Moses as a prophet. But in Deuteronomy 18, God describes Moses as a prophet and says one day another prophet like him is going to show up. And Israel should listen to that prophet. And likewise, in Malachi, we're told, before the great day of the Lord, Elijah will return to you. So I think it's that big attention to the past, but also the future expectation that describes their appearance here. Yes, they were major figures in the past, but they also symbolize hope for the future. When a new Moses comes, when Elijah returns to reform and refine the community of God's people, they will show up before God shows up. So if Moses and Elijah are there, all we need is for God to show up. Well, guess what? He has Jesus standing right there with them in glorious appearance. And our suspicions are confirmed when we read in verse 31, Moses and Elijah, what are they talking about? They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. The English word there, departure, translates the Greek word where we get our English word, exodus. They're talking about Jesus's exodus. And Luke wants us, therefore, to to read this transfiguration story, but think about the exodus. What is Jesus going to do in Jerusalem when he's crucified? It's going to be like what Moses did for Israel in the exodus. There's going to be salvation and deliverance accomplished. In fact, look at just a few more of those similarities before we move on from this point. Similarities between here on the Mount of Transfiguration and Moses meeting with God on Mount Sinai. Obviously, you have the presence of Moses on a mountain. You have the presence of glory. It's on people's faces when they encounter God. We talked about that on Sunday night in 2 Corinthians. Moses would have to veil his face because of the glory that was showing. In a moment, Peter will talk about building three shelters or tabernacles. Well, it was on Mount Sinai that God told Moses how to build the tabernacle. God manifests his presence in a cloud. 
and you have great fear as a result, all those similarities are intentional. The way God reveals himself and the way he moves Luke to write the story wants us to focus on what Jesus has come to do. Who is he? And what is he doing? He's the new Moses come to accomplish this new exodus for the people of God. Just as Israel was in bondage in Egypt, both physically and spiritually, so you and I need to be set free from the evil powers that would wage war against our soul. That's something we draw attention to when we have this prayer of confession every week. What are the temptations that still beset us, and how can we be conformed more and more to the image of our God? Humanity as a whole has that bent towards evil. God sets us free from that slavery, but there's still corruption. There's still temptation. God is working to restore us into his image. And as we are more made like him, we we rightly relate to God. We rightly relate to one another. We rightly relate to ourselves. Well, it's that need. That is our fundamental need. That is what Jesus came to do, to set us free from that slavery and to conform us into the image of God. And so Jesus is about to go to Jerusalem, and on this mountain, Moses and Elijah show up to talk about that with him. The salvation he is going to accomplish. And so we can pause at this point in the story and, and just remember, reflect, give thanks that the grace of deliverance, freedom from sin, that is what God offers you in Christ. Freedom from guilt because we're forgiven, freedom from regret because God gives hope and a future, freedom from those powers that still entangle. Times when, when we lament that temptations still come our way or the bad decisions we make or the sins we do against God and others. There is grace, friends, available to change us and to make us more like our Savior. And so as we come to him afresh each day, each Lord's Day, in faith, in repentance, in trust, and in love, that process of transformation is taking place. And it's a lifelong process that will make you more and more like our glorious God. So so God gives us those tools because that is what Jesus came to accomplish. Now, while all these great things are happening with Jesus and Moses and Elijah, what's going on with the disciples? You can probably guess. I mean, we read it, but you also know their track record. Verse 32, Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. And the idea probably isn't that they were completely asleep. Probably that they were very drowsy, that they were battling sleep. Their heads kept nodding forward. But when they realize what is happening, suddenly they, they perk up and they snap out of their stupor. And, and whether right at that moment or later, eventually Moses and Elijah begin to leave. But Peter, now fully awake, he doesn't want the experience to end. And so he makes this suggestion, Master... Verse 33, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Now, the the comment at the end of verse 33 tells us that Peter didn't know what he was saying. We're going to speak to that in just a moment. I think what Luke also wants us to see, though, is is that on one level, Peter's instinct was moving in the right direction. 
but it's the flaw that God aims to straighten out. So, so what's the good insight that Peter is reflecting here? Well, when he says, let us put up three shelters, he is probably making an allusion to celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles. Your translation may say tents, or it may even say that. Tabernacles. Let's build three tabernacles. And that was one of Israel's biggest feasts. It was one of the annual feasts when people gathered to remember how God had provided for them in the past. And Jewish men and boys, they would construct tents or shelters, and they would live in them for a week. And they would just celebrate all of God's provision throughout Israel's history. Maybe getting on the level of our thanksgiving, giving thanks to God for what he had done in the past. But like many things, it also looked to the future. So the prophets, Zechariah, for instance, he sees a day when all the nations will celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles with Israel in the last days. And maybe, just maybe, Peter's mind is going that way. He sees Moses and Elijah, the forerunners of the great day of the Lord. Okay, well, let's just keep going and celebrate this end times feast. So moving in the right direction. But here's the problem. He greatly sees how cool it is that Moses and Elijah are there. But in doing so, he underestimates Jesus. In saying that they should build three tabernacles, Peter has brought Jesus down to the level of Moses and Elijah. And wanting to build three for them, he implies a certain level of equality. And God wants Peter to see that Jesus is vastly superior and will fulfill things in a radical way. So let's see how God tells them that uh, in this section now. So in verse 34, while Peter is still speaking, a cloud appeared and covered them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And often, again, in Scripture, the cloud represents the presence of God. So so the presence of God in the cloud encompasses the disciples, and they're, they're afraid. God has come down to get their attention. Because Peter has made a statement, and God is going to speak to it, and it is very important what he will say. In verse 35, we read, A voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son, whom I have chosen. Listen to him. This is where God completes Peter's understanding. Let me highlight just three things about what God says. First, notice what he says about who Jesus is. This is where we've been driving all this morning. This is my son. So is he like Moses and Elijah? Yes, he is. But he is also greater than them. He is not just another prophet. He is the son of God. And it is his right, therefore, to inherit the nation's He's come not just to rule over Israel, but to rule over the world, to be the world's true Lord. He's he's not just a king like David. He is Israel's greatest king. And he will gather all of God's people into one and rule and reign forever. So if the disciples, here's what they need to think. If they're going to confess, okay, you're the Messiah, then God says, let's recognize what that involves. That he is my son, He shares my nature. He is God himself manifest in the flesh, coming to rule over his people. 
And that lesson for the disciples speaks to you and me as well. How do we view Jesus' role in our lives? So, so maybe with, with Scripture completed and, and years of teaching behind us, we, we can confess, all right, Jesus Christ is God. We confess the Apostles' Creed this morning. He, he shares God's nature. But what does that mean then? If, if, if he is God, then is he God over your life? Lord over every decision and, and, and just the direction that your life is moving. I, I think we struggle with the temptation, and then pastors can do this as well. To say, okay, here's my plans, Here, here's what I'm going to do, I hope Jesus will just stick his stamp of approval on it, versus, okay, I've, I've got to bring everything to him. What are his priorities? How would he shape that plan and go before me like the pillar of cloud and fire there in the Old Testament? And, and to walk with him in complete dependence and letting him shape that direction and those plans. Is, is he just a helper or is he the Lord? And God is saying he's the Lord, Lord of the nations, and so should be Lord over us as well. Second, God is telling the disciples that he's the anointed servant of the Lord, the one who accomplishes Israel's salvation. Again, God says, this is my son whom I have chosen. And and if you're using the King James or New King James, it will say beloved, but I think chosen is the better reading in the original manuscripts and in light of its Old Testament background. Chosen not only highlights who Jesus is, but what he has come to do and flows right out of the Old Testament. Isaiah 42, verse 1, for example, Here is my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. This is another reference to what we were talking about earlier when we said that Jesus will come and accomplish this salvation, this liberation, this exodus for the people of God. Through his servant, God will bring this about. And so when God uses that word, when he says this is the chosen one, it should ring those bells in their minds. He has come to save his people from their sins. And they're seeing glory now. Yeah, so it's glorious on the mountain. That's his temporary. First the cross, then the resurrection unto glory. And as the disciples needed to grasp that, so we do as well. But what is the point of Jesus being king? It is a redemptive kingship that he reigns in order to rescue. And so when we start thinking about our life, when we start thinking about Jesus being king, again, as we just said, it involves a submission to him. It involves a trust in him. It involves a relationship with him. And when we think about the mission of the church, what's the, rule, what's the role of the church? As we further Jesus' reign in the world, what does that look like? It's a redemptive reign in which he calls people to name Jesus as Lord and to submit to him and to know his forgiving, rescuing grace. So it guides us in our mission. And then lastly this morning, God issues a command. Listen to him. And one more time, echoing Deuteronomy 18, God will raise up a prophet like Moses and the people must listen to him. So if we confess Jesus as Messiah, if we acknowledge him as God, our Savior, then that brings with it the command to follow him, to take him at his terms, to be ready to bear the fruit he produces 
in our lives. And so it's not just the fruit that we want to produce or, or what we think, okay, this is what it will look like to please God. It's what he says pleases him, his virtues, his actions, his lordship. That is how God describes Jesus. And so again, I think you can see why God was quick to interrupt Peter. This isn't just a moment of let's do another thing in redemptive history. This is bringing everything to its culmination by God himself coming to his people and doing it by means of the cross. And so God, through this story, wants to make us more and more aware of who Jesus is, what he has come to do, and what he is calling us to do. And our whole ability to embrace that, our whole ability to respond rightly to it is is because he walks the path first. If you go on now and read the rest of Luke 9, and, and as it transitions into the rest of Luke's gospel, this is where Jesus sets his face resolutely to go to Jerusalem. He will now go and, and live out this calling of submitting to these hostile authorities, of being put to death, and being raised from the dead in order to give us new life. He suffered unto death and was raised to glory. He followed his heavenly Father, and the path turned out the way God wanted it to turn out. And so there is the gift of grace given to us, the forgiveness, the mercy to come to follow him. And there is that example that we can follow. And there's just a transformative power of of believing that following God, even if it means suffering, leads to life. That is the good path that we should walk in. So let's ask ourselves these questions as we finish today. Do we see Jesus for who he truly is? Do we follow him as he calls us to follow? And if we do, that is a good path. That's a path with glory. That's a path with grace. That's a path with provision. So let's pray for God to do that for us in our lives. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you again for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for his great grace and his great mercy. Help us, Lord, in, in, the, in the last few moments of this service just to sit and by faith behold your glory, to give adoration and, and praise and thanks to you that you are the glorious God who lived, died, and rose again and even now sits at the Father's right hand uh, for the sake of your glory and the salvation that you have accomplished. So again, we pray, forgive us of our sins when we, when we do not follow in the way we ought to go. Forgive us for when we lose sight of your glory. And forgive us if we're self-sufficient or we're, we're rushing to figure things out our way when we need to hear what you tell us in your word and what the Spirit would lead us to do. So thank you for your glory. We, we stand in awe of it. Transform us into that image. Thank you for your grace and help us to follow you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing. Him 598, Guide Me, O Thou Great Jehovah. Uh, After we sing, we'll sit back down because we have a baptism. Then we'll have the benediction before the congregational meeting. But let's stand now and sing the three verses of Him 598, Guide Me, O Thou Great Jehovah.